This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. First, having read the Book of Myths and loaded the camera, and checked the edge of the knife blade, I put on the body armor of black rubber, the absurd flippers, the grave and awkward mask. I am having to do this not like Cousteau with his assiduous team aboard the sun-flooded schooner, but here alone. There is a ladder. The ladder is always there, hanging innocently, close to the side of the schooner, We know what it is for, we who have used it. Otherwise, it is a piece of maritime floss. I wanted to speak today about meditation or dhyana, paramita. And this is part of the the six paramita sequence. So it's the Mahayana listing of of the paramitas. It doesn't actually appear as part of the ten paramitas, it's, there it's, it's named upekka or parami or uh, equanimity, which is also one of the four immeasurables. And I spoke of it also as one of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And there it was, um, or the way that I, that I spoke of it is, was the, the classical definition of the four jhanas, the, the states of meditation. So I wanted to deal with it a little bit differently today. I came across this, this poem by Adrienne Rich, Diving into the Wreck. And she's a pretty, she was a pretty well-known poet, and she refused the National Medal of the Arts in the 90s in protest of um, a vote. Newt Gringrich, Gringrich had just voted to um, remove funding from the National Endowment of the Arts. And so in protest, she refused this award. And she says, you know, art means nothing if it simply decorates the dinner table of the power which holds it hostage. But I came across this poem and I I wanted to talk about this work of diving into the wreck. And it doesn't have to be a wreck and I don't want to focus on the wreck, but it's just... It's a good image because it describes well our hesitancy to dive, our our propensity to just stay on the surface, skimming, reluctant to go deeper and meet what we might find. And so while the ladder is always there, hanging innocently on the side of the schooner, if we don't use it, as she says, it's just another piece of maritime floss or it's decoration, It looks good, but nothing more. A number of people have said to me recently that they're finding counting their breath boring, that it's too simple, and they need something more more challenging, more engaging. And I said, really? Really look closely at what is really going on. Because in my mind... Boredom has no place in the mind of a practitioner. There's no room for it. 
there's no room for it to be, there's no room for, there's nothing for it to, to hold on to, to grasp. Because when your mind is fully engaged, there's no gap. We know this, we hear this all the time. So there's no gap, there's no space for boredom to slip into, for dullness, familiarity, complacency. All of these can only appear with distance, and you don't need much. You don't need much distance. You just need a tiny sliver for that thought to slip through. And so really, most of the time, what's happening when we say we're counting our breath is we're on automatic. And I've said this before, you know, because counting is so familiar, it's so habitual, we just do it. It doesn't require much effort for us to do it. And so we just do it. And in the background, just underneath the surface, there's this steady stream of thoughts just flowing right under the surface. And of course, this is not counting your breath. This is thinking. This is telling yourself you're doing one thing while doing another. Usually, because we don't want to work too hard. We don't want to concentrate. We want to concentrate enough, but not too much. And I think we all do this at some point, whether it's the breath, whether it's working on a koan, that open awareness of shikantaza. I mean, I certainly went through many times when I thought to myself, I can't bear to do another one of these, another one of these koans. But it's just a thought. It has no substance. If I do nothing, if I don't move towards it, if I don't hold on to it, it passes like every other created thing. And Shikantaza, which I think is, is challenging because of its subtlety, you know, are you watching? Are you really aware of that stream of thoughts? Or are you just sitting there thinking? Are you being swept away by the content? Can you tell the difference? In the Tibetan Mahamudra practice, distraction is not a problem. And so the instruction is to be fully aware that you're distracted. To ask yourself, where are these thoughts coming from? Shugen Sensei touched on it yesterday. Where are they coming from? What is a thought to begin with? Where does it go when it passes? Where does it go? So rather than getting caught up in the, in the stories and the content of thought, we're directly looking at the nature of thought itself. A nature which is no different from the nature of mind, from the nature of self. I remember speaking with my father at some point and trying to describe to him the hard work of being still and silent and the many hours I was spending doing nothing but watching my mind and how mysterious and right it felt to do this and and to feel that for the first time in my life I was actually getting a sense of who I was. And 
in the beginning, I wasn't trying to see emptiness or anything. I mean, I didn't even know what that was. I had no sense of it. I didn't actually know what I was doing. Um, but I could not do it. I've, I've said this before. You know, I, I picked up a book on, on Zen. I don't even remember which one. I remember that I was in a, in a hotel somewhere in, in Europe, and there was, you know, that, those bedside tables. And I opened the drawer, and there was a Bible, and there was whatever this book was in Zen. And so I started to read the book on Zen. I started to sit on my own. And I knew. I knew at that instant. I didn't know what else. But I knew that I would always do that, that in some form or other I would spend the rest of my life spending some time during my days sitting, looking at my mind. And I couldn't even say it in these words back then, but I knew I had found this incredibly powerful entry point into me. And I remember it was while I was working on Mu that I began to hear this voice, which actually had been there for a little while, but it just became louder and more insistent. Um, I started to think, you know, maybe, maybe I am gay after all. I mean, it was perfectly obvious to everyone but me. <laughs> It took me a while. You know, it was right in front of my eyes, and I couldn't see. And it was through this process of working on Moo, which I, you know, it's so difficult to explain. How do you say to someone, you're just sitting there going, Moo, Moo. And in the process, you are becoming you. You are becoming more you and less you. Right? So, so the, um, all the extra, all the baggage begins to drop away so that you're there in fact, to see yourself fully. And I could sense, you know, from the beginning that I was floating on the the surface of a vast ocean. I could sense that. And I wanted to see what was underneath. So Mu is not an exercise to get you to, it's not a trick to get you to sit more. But it shows you It shows you directly your nature. And I don't mean just your identity, but your fundamental nature. And going very deeply to the bottom of that ocean where you can't tell one from another. You can't tell gay from straight, male from female, young or old. So that when you come back to the surface, back to open air and sky, you can, in fact, manifest who you truly are. And this is a little bit of an aside, but um, thinking of identity reminded me, I was listening to a talk by Kandra Rinpoche, and she was saying that she's always interested in asking her, her students how they became Buddhist, because she said, you know, in her case it was kind of a done deal. She said she opened her eyes at birth, and there were a bunch of teachers around that said, you're a Buddhist. And so <laughs> she said there wasn't much discussion. But then, so when she asks other people, she likes to hear their stories. And there's this one of a woman, one of her students, who 
in her words is a very Italian Italian, which I take as, you know, maybe Catholic, maybe chic, and <laughs> not someone you would necessarily think would turn to Buddhism, would be interested even in Buddhism. And she was in a bookstore and was looking for a novel, and a book fell on her head. And so <laughs> she looked at it, and it was a Tibetan book of living and dying. And she had no idea what it was, so she just took it and put it back on the shelf and kept looking for her novel. And again, the book fell on her head. Now, I'm not exactly sure how this happened, but apparently it happened. So it fell on her head again. Maybe she flipped through it a little bit. She put it back. And as she's leaving, a third time, the book falls on her head. And so she thinks, maybe somebody's trying to tell me something. And she, so she bought it and became, became a Buddhist. And she talks uh, a little more soberly about how you could spend, she says hundreds or thousands, I can't remember, of lifetimes building you know, this, this karma. So millions upon billions of moments to take you to that moment of the book falling on your head, of sitting in this room where you have the time the means, the inclination to study the Dharma. Lifetime upon lifetime that took you to this place. And then she says, and then in a moment, in a moment of turning, you can throw it all away. She says you can do a U-turn and turn away from the Dharma in a moment of distraction, a moment of carelessness, or worse, a moment of pride, um, anger, where you actually turn away. And when she said this, you hear the audience gasp, you know, the, to, to feel the, the import of each moment, the import of our actions, and how they, um, how they build a life. And then she says, and the opposite is also true. You could, you could live lifetimes immersed in delusion, and in a moment of turning towards what is true, Everything changes. So we shouldn't take these zazen instructions lightly. To not rush you know, through working on the breath just to get to the real stuff of working with a koan. Believe me, there's plenty of those you should enjoy uh, sitting with the breath when you can, with open awareness. Because it's not, it's not difficult to work automatically, certainly on the breath, on a koan. And it shows. It, it will show in our lives. What we're doing in our zazen is directly evident in our lives. If we're sitting deeply, if we're letting that stillness and silence permeate our entire body, our entire mind, that will become evident in our lives. And we can't avoid that. It will show in our work, in our relationships, in the pattern of our thoughts that does begin to change. It begins to quiet down. They begin to quiet down. And they become less, less sticky. And practice is none other than our lives. Again, we hear this all the time. But is that true? Is that our experience? Is that where we're actually living? And if it isn't, 
you know, if the two don't match, maybe it's time to dive a little deeper. I've been reading The Cloud of Unknowing, which was written as, as counsel to all those who would undertake this work of plumbing the depths of our being. And in the introduction, the, the writer who, who's introducing the book says, you know, a lot of, of the teachings of this author are based on um, teachings of a philosopher and mystic called Pseudo-Dionysus, the Aeropagite, um, who said this, in the practice of mystic contemplation, leave behind the senses and the operations of the intellect and all the things that the senses or the intellect can perceive and all things which are not and things which are and strain upwards and unknowing as far as may be. For by unceasing and absolute withdrawal from yourself and all things in purity, abandoning all and set free from all, you shall be borne up to the ray of divine darkness that surpasses all being. And, you know, just a, a word about this term, contemplation. It is actually understood as content-free awareness. And so in Christianity, it would be the unity with God. We understand it as samadhi. Meditation, on the other hand, in this tradition is, is deep reflection. It involves language and thought. It can be a reflection of a, a biblical passage, for example, and so it's active in that way, but contemplation is really no gap, no, no object, no subject and object. And so in that way, our practice is a contemplative practice. And that is why it's necessary to leave all the senses behind and the intellect, to cover them, as the author of The Cloud of Unknowing says, with a cloud of forgetting, so, in other words, to do this work, you have to deeply, deeply trust that the senses can only take you so far, that there is much that they perceive, all of this, but they can't perceive this. Not really, not quite. So you have to abandon everything, all of it, to be born on the ray of divine darkness. And it's not light, you see, and that comes later. First, you do have to rest in the depths, in the darkness, and you have to do it alone. As Adrian Rich says, you, know, you can't dive with a team like Cousteau for this work. It's helpful to have a team like this. It's helpful to have a guide. But the one who's diving is you, and you can only do it alone. You're the only one who can dive into the cloud of unknowing. And so the way the author describes it is that underneath there's a cloud of forgetting, which is the buffer, if you will, what keeps the, the senses and the intellect quiet. And I really see it as the instruction, the very basic instruction, that the moment you see the thought, that you let it go. And I, and I wonder if we understand the, the, 
the power, the true power of that instruction, the, the momentousness of that instruction. That if we only did that, see a thought, let it go, and came back, that we could do this for the rest of our lives and never exhaust it. Because will there ever be a moment when we can be too present, too unified? So there's that cloud of forgetting below and the cloud of unknowing above. That's what you're, uh, what word did he use? Straining, straining upwards in non-knowing. So you can move deeper into the darkness. Which is not what we think it is. You know, it's not actually frightening. I mean, it's not anything at all, in fact. Because we speak of, and I think all of us experience it at some point, of that the moment that your body or your mind recoils. As your mind begins to settle, you're beginning to feel that, that quiet, that stillness, and your body just jerks. Or your, your mind jumps and starts going. And I've always thought, you know, it's not surprising. Your ego has been working really hard your whole life to build itself up. It's not going to just lay down without a fight. But if we're patient and persistent, it's, it, it takes getting to that edge, I think right the edge of the schooner, right before the dive, where there's this, this moment of... of um, it's, a, it's a kind of unease. And, and, and staying there, staying right on that edge, being persistent to, to gently press through the reactive fear to keep settling. Because once you're in the water, you know, it's, it's really just a matter of letting go and slowly descending. And your body acclimates. And your mind does too. And every once in a while, it, it brings you up again, pushes you back up to the surface. And you do it again. And every time you do it, you realize you can stay under a little longer, that it's okay, that it's not dangerous in the way that you thought it was. And that gives you strength. And it gives you confidence for the next dive. And the author says, the active life is troubled and busy about many things, but the contemplative life sits in peace with the one thing necessary. What is the one thing necessary? If we can answer that, then the lion's share of our work is done. Because most of our floundering, our struggling, all of it, all of it comes from not being clear about what, that one thing necessary. So we sit down to do zazen, but once there, we find ourselves it's more interesting to go over a conversation we just had, to right a wrong that's been done to us, to get some work done, to process what your therapist said to you, what your teacher said. But is that really the one thing necessary? during this time? Is that how we will get to the heart of who we are? 
I think the, the further we, we move into and keep clarifying our vision, in Shugen Sensei, certainly for, um, for Dharma communications and how it ties into the monastery's work, I think that is the question that we're asking ourselves in one form or another, and we keep asking and keep having to return to what is the one thing necessary. And even when, when we know better, in the midst of our zazen, when we know where the stories lead, the fantasies, sometimes it feels like we don't have control over our thoughts. We, we can't stop that stream of thoughts. There are too many. They come too fast. And we have instruction for that, to deal with that as well. You know, the first is just ignore them, basically. You know, if you don't feed a thought with your awareness, with your attention, it loses its momentum. And you know, if it's really important... It will be there later. We don't have to worry that we have to to hold on to it, remember. It will be there when we need it. But that moment of true true release, of, of truly letting a thought go, which you do either by not feeding it or if you can't, if you can't then remember the other instruction is you basically you move towards it. In a sense, you surrender to it. You stop fighting because the thought needs you to keep the fight going. And you're letting go again. It loses its power. And so we gradually, we're gradually clearing out the flotsam so that we can navigate with ease. And when we do find, in that moment when you can say to yourself as clearly and simply, and as simply as you can, the, the, the shorter and the easier it is to remember, the easier it will be to remember, the moment you find that thing that is most necessary to you, that's where you drop your anchor. And as you do this, Know that we have to sit with all the height and depth and length and breadth of our being. You can't do this halfway. You can't do it partially. We have to sit high with the full power of our entire body, our entire mind. We have to sit sit deep, gathering all our energy and attention into this one thing. Whether it's your breath, a con, awareness. We have to sit long with every ounce of our yearning to see more clearly. And we have to sit wide, wanting every single being in the universe to be free. Knowing that as we become free, every single being in the universe becomes free. And in the beginning, it does feel awkward, like putting on a tight rubber suit and awkward flippers and a mask. And then little by little, we become used to these. We become used to this process 
the thought loses its charm, its fascination. And then we can swim light and unburdened. I did a couple of of weeks ago a a hermitage and it was um, it was ambrosia I hadn't done one in a while in too long and fall was just past its peak so all the golds and reds and um, were just just turning rusty and the the beaches are my, my favorite in the fall that deep copper color that for some reason always puts me somewhere in the past, like the Middle Ages or the Renaissance or something, like traces of a past life. Um, and the black tupelos were just past their, their peak of purple. And um, I had not quite the whole week, but I had almost a week in front of me. And there was a full moon. And I was telling someone, it was I, I went out one night to get some food, and I kept there was this, this um, what it felt like a floodlight just out of the corner of my vision. And I kept thinking, I don't remember houses this high up. And it just kept getting brighter and brighter until it rose enough on high up on the trees that I realized it was the moon. And it was, it was one of those enormous yellow moons that I could trace you know, the whole night on its arc. So it was really... I get chills thinking about it. It was really magical. It was a wonderful week. And I did um, a lot of night sitting. Um, and I was reflecting afterwards. You know, I think it, it, it really gives you a, a access to a part of your mind that during the day is just not quite accessible. The lines, they, they, they blur. They become indistinct. What seems so solid becomes porous. I wasn't sure where my body ended, where the floor began, the walls of the cabin. And I usually do a hermitage in the Dogen Hermitage because I like to sit outside on the porch. And this time I was up on the mountain. And it was like I was sitting outside. It felt that way. And I have the stove going, pretty hot, um, which added to that feeling of, of my body being just permeable. And you know, when you sit like that, when there is so much space that it just feels it extends forward and back as far as you can see, feel, it's easier to let go because there's nowhere to escape to. There's nothing to do, nothing but you and the one thing necessary. And I've heard people say, you know, I had a, a great hermitage. I, I caught up on sleep. And I think... Why would you want to waste this time? You don't, you don't get this time like this, not even in Sashin. Certainly not if you're a resident where there is so much to do. That kind of wide open space. What a gift it is and what a shame to let it seep away. What a shame in that, that moment where you decide to indulge a little fantasy where you just go away for a little bit because you worked so hard on the last period. So 
Now, if you ask me what sort of moderation you should observe in the contemplative work, I will tell you, none at all. In everything else, such as eating, drinking, and sleeping, moderation is the rule. Avoid extremes of heat and cold. Guard against too much and too little in reading, reflection, or social involvement. In all these things, I say again, keep to the middle path. But in love, take not measure. Indeed, I wish that you had never to cease from this work of love, this work of contemplation. In everything else, avoid extremes. I mean, this could be Dogen, Fukan Zazengi. Avoid heat or cold. Eat moderately. Make sure you have a, 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 a place to sit, a quiet room. So in, in all of these, you know, take measure, but not in this work of contemplation. Shugen Sensei says it so often, you know, don't save anything. And save it for what? For when? We have a little bit of time still left in the session, as the Shusa pointed out earlier. And the latter is hanging innocently on the side of the schooner. Actually, no, there's, there is no schooner. There's just the ladder. And it's several fathoms long. And the deeper you go, the further you go, the longer it gets. So it has no end. There's no point of arrival. Isn't that wonderful? And the for, further you go, the darker it gets until the darkness becomes indistinguishable from the light. And then you think, now I've surely arrived. But there's still more. And really, all that we need is just a little courage. You don't even need a lot. Just a little courage to place that foot on the first rung of the ladder. Your hand's still firmly on the handrails. And the other foot is hovering on an instant, for an instant, in midair. And then because you know where staying on the surface will get you. And that's no longer what you want for your life. You step, fearfully at first, perhaps, uncertainly, but you step, nonetheless, into the unknown. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.